Hey, my name is Bob Nowak. I'm an elder here. And uh, Eric has asked me to, it's a long passage he's preaching, so he wanted me just to read it in advance. And if you want to, um, you can turn to Isaiah 40. I think it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, we're going to start at verse 12. This is Isaiah 40:12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon, known for its trees, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. We're flipping to verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them by name? By the greatness of his might and because of his strong power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, that is a rather lengthy passage, and so I invited Bob to read it. And also, I just really like the sound of his voice. Right. It's good to be with you tonight. Um, my name's Eric, one of the pastors here. I, this is, and I know preachers say this like every week, but this is truly one of the greatest and most beautiful passages of scriptures. And I know we say this every week, but I really, really mean it. Uh, I, I love these words from the Lord. And, and um, what's happening in Isaiah 40 is um, we're getting a vision of God. What we just read was, was a vision of our God. But behind this passage of scripture, which is poetic and prophetic, uh, which is this amazing logical argument and yet this heartfelt reply, behind all of this, the people of Israel, God's people, are questioning him. They're crying out to him. The context of the scenario was this. Israel, God's chosen people, are living under the captivity of the Babylonian Empire, which is the current greatest empire in all the world. And the scriptures make it clear that this captivity is, is, um, it's Israel's fault. It's their own sin and rebellion against God. And the context is 70 years of captivity. So you can imagine that over the years you have, you have older generations who perhaps remember 
being hauled off from their land. They remember perhaps the destruction of the temple, their place of worship. They may even remember the good old days. And then you have these younger generations of of Israelites who, who grew up under captivity. Many people who would say, we, we've heard of the God of our fathers. We've, we've heard the songs sung about him and the scriptures that reveal him. But we've never seen him do anything for us. So you have God's people calling out, questioning him. And they're asking God, do you even see us? And if you do see us, is there anything that you can do about the situation that we find ourselves in? Can you redeem this? Can you heal this? We know that this is their question because in, in, in verse 27, the Isaiah says, this is what God's people are saying to God. They're saying, surely my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. It's been 70 years, so they must be saying, surely you've forgotten us. Surely our sins really are irredeemable. This whole passage, this latter part of chapter 40, is God himself responding to them. He's responding to their cry, which is actually our cry. Their cry, their longing to, to see the power of God is also something that we call out for. Many of us, even right now in our lives, are saying, God, is, is there anything you can do about this situation I'm in? God, is this marriage really doomed? Lord, am, am I going to be single forever? We're asking all sorts of questions about the God that we've heard of, but we're asking them personally, God, is there anything that you can do for me? And tonight, God will respond. We get this vision of God. And what Isaiah 40 is, what, what's really happening here is Isaiah is showing us God through God's eyes. As his people call out to him, God is saying, this is what you need to know about me. This is how you'll build your vision of who I am by seeing me, not through your perception, not through your problems, but actually seeing God the way God sees God. And when we look to God in this way, we're going to see a couple things about him tonight. You might want to write this down. But when we look to God through God's eyes, we'll see his otherness and his nearness. Tonight, I think that some of us are going to discover that for the very first time. My prayer is that some of us will recover that again, that vision of God and I really believe that no matter where you are, if you're a skeptic, if you're on the fence about God, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're going to leave here changed because we're going to see God's word on display and we're going to see him. So let's pray about that. Lord, we thank you for your word. Tonight, Lord, we, we are calling out to you, much like your people did many years ago. We're calling out to you, longing that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would encounter you. Lord, I pray that you would raise our awareness of you tonight, that you would raise our expectations of what you're able to do. And Lord, we pray that we would see you tonight in powerful ways, and we leave this place changed. Lord, thank you for your word. 
We open our hearts to it. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. So when we're calling out to God, according to this passage of scripture, the first thing that we need to see is God's otherness. We need to know that God actually isn't like us, that he's distinct, that he is unique. When we speak of God's otherness, or as the theologians say, his transcendence, there's many different things that we could say, but tonight we're going to look at two things that relate to God's otherness, and it's his power and his wisdom. We'll see that really clearly in this passage. As Israel cries out to God, God responds with questions of his own. Verse 12 says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? We're invited into these five rhetorical questions that to the writer Isaiah are so obvious, so clear what the answer is that he lets us just sit with them and consider them. What is he saying? He's saying, this is our God. The vast oceans of the world are literally held in the palm of his hand. He's altogether over and above the creation. The majestic mountains and hills, he puts on a scale. But us, when we look at the vastness of creations, the mountains, the oceans, we feel overwhelmed, even dwarfed by creation. When I was in college, I used to play music with a group of friends who were, um, they were a part of a church together and um, they were the worship band of this church and they would sometimes invite me to come play music with them, which was super fun. I loved doing it. And they would always have these really cool like gigs and they would invite me to play with them. One time they called me and they said, Eric, we would love it if you would join us. We're going out to Springfield, Missouri. And I said, absolutely not. No interest in Springfield, Missouri. I actually lived there one time, so I can say that with confidence. <laughs> Nothing going on there. And uh, they said, well, here's the deal. We're renting an RV, and we're actually going to do a cross-country road trip to Springfield, Missouri. And I said, I'll be there. Let's go. We had an amazing, amazing time. We, we drove out to Springfield uh, on the way. So many Waffle Houses. If you live in the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. Terrible food, but it, it works when you're like, 20. And um, we drove out to Missouri. We led worship at this conference and we were on our way back uh, to Southern California where I used to live. And on our way back, one of the guys in the band, JC, greatest name ever, um, and, the, and the wise one in the band said, you know, we're, we're pretty close to the Grand Canyon, just a couple hours out of the way. He says, I think we should go. And I'd never been before, so I was skeptical. I said, why in the world would we want to like veer off the path? We need to get back to California, which is infinitely better than like Oklahoma and New Mexico and all these other states that we'd just driven through. And, uh, but we agreed. We agreed to do it. Took us off the path for a little bit. This is before Google Maps. So we're like looking at the MapQuest thing. Like, well, how do we get there? And so eventually we, we, we found it. And then we, we pulled up to... The parking lot, this is in the middle of the afternoon, the sun is beginning to set, and we, we walk, I remember, I'll never forget 
walking up near the edge and I am so unbelievably terrified of heights and standing at the edge and thinking, I am so small. I am so insignificant. I remember looking out and thinking, this canyon really is grand and it really does go on for what seems like forever. I felt this sense of awe, this sense of insignificance, this sense of smallness. We've all, if you've traveled or if you've even walked outside in the state of Oregon, you've sensed how great and awesome creation is. And you've probably felt overwhelmed or dwarfed by that. But the reality is that God doesn't know that feeling. The scriptures tell us that rather being, than being overwhelmed by creation, and these scriptures tell us, God actually overwhelms creation. God himself dwarfs creation. Maybe that's why we get scriptures that say things like, even the rocks cry out to him. This is our vision of God, his majesty. He's powerful. The image of him weighing out the mountains and the hills and the scale, creating perfect balance in our world. The vision of him reigning and ruling over everything that has been created. We see God's infinite power. But power is a scary thing, isn't it? Imagine, imagine if the God that is just described was, was rash. Imagine if he was insecure. Imagine if he was impulsive. We know, because we've lived in this world, that there's nothing worse than power without wisdom. And so Isaiah shows us an image, a vision of God where he is not only powerful, but his wisdom is infinite. In verses 13 to 14, he goes on painting this picture of God. He says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? We started with five questions um, given to God's people and now we have seven more. And it's relating to the wisdom of God. It's, it's, it, the question could be summed up like this. Does, does God need your advice? When we make big decisions, we, I think we would all agree, maybe if you've owned a business or you've made a big decision in your life, it's, it's wise for us to bring in other people, Right? I remember some of the biggest decisions in my life and I brought in some of the people that I trusted the most. And I said, is this a good idea? Should I move from Southern California to Oregon? I remember asking these questions and, and bringing the people that I trusted the most in because I needed help. I needed advice. But God doesn't need counsel. He doesn't need an advisory board. Although, if we're honest, we'd like to think that he does and we'd all nominate ourselves to be on that board. Am I right? We think that God needs our opinion on how the world should run. And our passage here starts with God saying, I'm actually able to figure out how the world should move. Isaiah 55, another beautiful passage of scripture. God says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now back to our context of, of, of God's people in exile. Anyone who has lived in, in exile, any of us who are residents of this broken world, we have to remember that God is wise and that he's powerful. But if we've experienced tragedy, if we've experienced heartbreak, if we've experienced unemployment, we've begun many times, many of us, to ask the question, God, do you really know what you're doing here? Do you really know what you're doing in my life? Do you really know the right way in this passage? I I love that it, it says, who taught him justice? God is just. He didn't need to learn how to be just like we do. He simply is. And he's not responding to to this cry from people in purely the abstract. It's not just, hey, you just need to know that I kind of rule over the world and the mountains and the hills. God brings us home to his people. In verse 15, he says this, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And, and on to 17, it says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Why would he say this? Because he's talking to a group of slaves. He's talking to a group of people who were ruled over by the current largest empire in the world. And this is, if you've read about God's people before, you know that this isn't the first time this has happened. They had been conquered, or they'd been um, living under oppression in Egypt early on in the story of God's people. They'd been conquered by Assyria, now the Babylonians. If you know the story, later on it'll be the empire of Rome. And God is speaking into their world and saying, these nations are a drop in a bucket compared to me. We live in a world where we think only only a few people have all the power. But God's perspective is different. How long in our world, how long does a ruler or a king or a president How long do they rule? A few years, maybe a few decades, depending on the system. But according to the scriptures, no ruler that has ever ruled even compares to the all-powerful and all-knowing, all-wise God of Israel. And he will reign forevermore. So the theologians, as they describe God, they use the word transcendence. Because the first thing that we need to know is that God is greater than all that we see. When we're living in the reality of exile, of longing, of crying out to God, the first thing we need to know is is that he's different. He's more powerful than us. He has more information than we do. Nothing compares to him. It goes on. Verse 25, this is an amazing picture here. It says, to whom then will you compare me? This is actually God speaking that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. 
Now we're, we're drawn into um, God speaking. Isaiah is even making comments here. He's saying, lift up your eyes, God's people. Look up and see. He's calling them to look at the stars and the planets. He says, look on high and see. Now, this, the interesting thing about this is that they're living in a land and in a time where the Babylonians would actually look up and they would worship the stars and the planets that they see. And God says to his people, look up. The objects that your captors are worshiping, God says, I actually made those. I created those. He goes on in verse 26, he says, he who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I read this week that in the Milky Way galaxy, there is at least 200 billion stars. And the image we have is of a God who brings them out, who created them. And we see that the God of the universe, this all-powerful and all-wise God, is not, he's, not, he's not toying with creation. He's, he's not um, just looking out and laughing and, and mocking us in our frailty. It says that he calls the stars by name and says not one is missing. Now, this is a really important thing that Isaiah says. I, I, I need you to listen to me on this and hear me. In the Old Testament, the scriptures describe this idea of naming something. And that has incredible significance. To name something in the Old Testament scriptures, it, it meant to have power over something. And we've already seen that in the scriptures. God actually has power over creation. But it means even more than that. To name something means to have relational understanding of it. To name something doesn't mean just to have power over something. It means to see it, to understand it, to know its purpose and how it works. And God says, I didn't just throw the stars into the sky. I named them. Not one is missing. And suddenly in our passage, we have Isaiah making a transition from God's otherness, his infinite power and wisdom to his nearness. Listen to how he continues. In verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. This is the question we started with. And according to Isaiah, it's illogical to say that. How could we say our way is hidden from the Lord? He's saying, I see you. I gave you a name. Did you notice in that passage, he refers to them as Jacob and Israel? It's because God gave them a name. The name Jacob means deceiver or heel grabber. And I'm really sorry if that's your name. <laughs> and he changes, they're not, he changes Jacob's name in the story in Genesis. God takes this deceiver and he changes his name and he changes even in many ways his nature. He calls him Israel, which means one who strives with God. An amazing picture of, of God seeing them. God is, is 
speaking to his people, not just saying, hey, I'm, I've, I'm all powerful, I'm all wise, you need to get over it. He's saying, I actually see you. I see where you are. I'm more powerful than these nations that you think will rule over you forever. And we're drawn in this passage into the nearness of God, or as the theologians say, his imminence. He sees us. Verse 28, he goes on. God has some more questions for us. He says this, have you not known? Have you not heard? At this point, we're like 15 questions in from God. We're like, God, what do you think about this? He's like, I got a question for you, or 15. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. Now listen to this. He does not faint or grow weary. Why? He's all powerful. His understanding is unsearchable. Why? Because he's all knowing. He has infinite wisdom and we must see him this way. And yet we're still, we still have this question. What is this God willing to do for me? 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This God who is all powerful apparently, according to his word, has strength to spare more than enough. He's able to increase their strength. He's able to give them what they need so they can soar, so they can run, so that they can walk. God's answer to their cry, which is actually our cry, is to say, this is who I am, and this is who I am for you. Here, God says, here, take my strength. Don't don't try and conjure up your own strength. Take on mine. And as he says this, as, as the readers, we're supposed to be drawn into this to the point that there's actually only one question that we're asking, and that is, how do I get a hold of this strength? How do I get a hold of what God is offering here? What is the proper response In our passage, I really see clearly that there's two statements that give any sense of instruction on on what we are supposed, how we are supposed to respond to this God who is totally other and is totally near. And it's this, we're told to look up and wait. Do you remember back in, in verse 26, it says simply this, Lift up your eyes and see. And then in verse 31, it says, but they who wait for the Lord. You could spend a lifetime on those instructions. Lift up your eyes and see. The God of the universe sees you. Will you look to him? And then we're told to wait. We're told to wait. Knowing that God is perfectly just, that he's powerful, that he knows, that he sees, and our job is to wait. 
And if we wait for him, there's a promise here that our, our strength will actually increase. The God who never faints says, I'll keep you from fainting. So what can we say of waiting? What kind of waiting is this? Is this like waiting for the bus? Is this like waiting around twiddling your thumbs? I think it's a lot different than that. This is waiting with great expectations. I love this, this definition of what it means to wait in the scriptures. It's, it's to live with the tension of promises revealed, but not yet fulfilled. Promises revealed, not yet fulfilled. We wait, we live in that tension with expectation, expecting God to show up. I think of my kids. Um, know when they, I know that many, many days they're, they're waiting for me to come home from the church, waiting me to come home from work. And they're not just sort of waiting there. They're waiting with like their eyes like on the, there's like the window and they're like looking and waiting because they know when I come home, we're going to jump on the trampoline and play the tripping game which is exactly what it sounds like. My kids run in a circle and I tripped them. They invented this game. Injuries have happened, but they asked for it, so. It's waiting with expectation. God says, this is what I'm actually looking for you to do, is to wait with great expectations. Living with the tension of promises revealed but not yet fulfilled, God says, I am coming for you. I am drawing near to you. The question we're invited into tonight is, will we believe and live in to that? A question you might need to ask tonight is, do you believe that God himself is worth the wait? He believes that about himself. He's aware of his timing. He's aware of his plans. He's aware of his power, his ability. Well, we believe that it's worth it to wait for him. There's a pastoral team. We've been, we, we pray for you guys a lot because we love you. And a, and a word that keeps coming up in our prayers is this word expectant. We need to be a community that is expectant, seeking and, and longing to see God. When you show up on Sunday nights, what would it look like to show up with great expectations? To show up, not just coming to hear a talk, but expecting that God's going to move in our worship service. Expecting that God may bring somebody into a conversation with you that you can encourage Someone that you can build up in their, in their faith. To be the community of Christ means to be an expectant community. A community that's willing to wait. And this idea of waiting on the Lord is, is not just something from this passage. It's all over the scriptures. I want to show you just a little bit of a barrage of of what God's word says about waiting for him. Lamentations 3, the poet says this, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Do you see that connection of waiting and seeking? God's defining what our waiting looks like. 
When we wait on the Lord, as we said, God gives us his power. The psalmist said, this is, this is a passage you should write on the wall, make wall art with it on this. It's amazing. Psalm 27 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then it says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Second Peter 3 talks about how waiting on God gives us his perspective. I love this passage. In 2 Peter 3, it says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord, I love this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Not in the way that we count slowness. Back to our context of who's being written to in Isaiah 40, of people who have been in exile for 70 years. God says, I am not slow in the way that you count slowness. Think about that in your life. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 5 says this, for while we we're still weak at the right time. Read that again. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, God will move. At the right time, God will act. At the right time, God will redeem. God's people would not be left in exile forever. He would redeem them. He would free them, bring them back to their land. What if we lived our lives in this world where we see so much brokenness and hurt, disease and sickness? What if we lived our life believing and knowing that at the right time, the God who weighs the mountains and the hills with a scale, pulls out the heavens with a span, whose understanding is unsearchable, who gives us strength so that we can wait. What if we lived knowing that he will move, he will act? What if we looked at the evils that we see in our world that are rampant and we knew that God, the nations, they're like a drop in a bucket compared to the one who will reign forever. What would our lives be be like if we lived with this expectation that he will come. Tonight, we'll come to the communion table here tonight. We're going to worship the Lord together. But tonight, when we come to the communion table, everything that we've seen in this passage of scripture is put on display. We know that God will save because we've seen Jesus. We know that he hung on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We know that he rose on the third day. We know that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts. So we know that God makes due on his promises. We know at the right time he moves.
And so with whatever we're holding tonight, whether that's great joy and expectation or deep sorrow and despair, the Lord says, wait for me. I'll draw near to you. And he has in Jesus. Jesus.